Amen. Amen. All right. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Today we begin to look at a transition in our Lord's sermon as he begins to address the topic of spiritual pride. So Matthew chapter 6, that may sound a bit different because over the last year you've heard open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. So maybe we'll get through chapter 6 in a little bit less than a year, I don't know. Uh, So we're going to read the first four verses of Matthew chapter 6 and we're going to look at this uh, idea that Jesus introduces on spiritual pride. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 1, where the Lord says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your father, or so that your giving will be in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now, God, as we turn to your word, Lord, uh, your word is all powerful, all sufficient. Father, I pray that your word would speak to your people through this vessel. Father, I pray the things which I speak are the things which you have spoken, God, no more, no less. Father, I pray you would use the word, God, to edify your saints, to call sinners out of darkness. Encourage us, equip us today, we pray, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So as we're transitioning into chapter 6 and Jesus sort of transitions from one topic that we've looked at over the last few months into another, what I wanted to do, I wanted to zoom out just for a little bit to get our bearings with the sermon, especially many of you are newer here, you haven't been here since I started this sermon uh, a little over a year ago, and we've been really in the weeds in chapter 5 talking about or looking at what Jesus had to say about the Old Testament law and how it applied to your heart. Uh, So what I want to do is just zoom out and give you another, just a context for where we are in this sermon uh, before diving into the text. So the Gospel of Matthew, if you've read through it and compared it, you'll you'll notice that Matthew is not a chronological gospel. Okay, so literary um, forms back then was not always chronological, meaning the Sermon on the Mount is at the beginning of Matthew, but it was really well into his uh, ministry when he gave this sermon. The way that Matthew structured this was very specific with the message he was trying to uh, portray. Uh, And that message was primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew was writing primarily to his Jewish brethren. And the theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew, it's very apparent that, that Matthew is giving the message to his Jewish brethren that Jesus is the Messiah and the King. That's the overall theme of the book of Matthew, that he is the king of the Jews. And Matthew was very particular to let the Jewish readers know that Jesus was bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Uh, The term kingdom of heaven is, is unique to Matthew's gospel, and it's used 32 times throughout the entire gospel. And it's used in a way that Matthew... Uh, is reminding or telling his audience that Jesus came to bring the kingdom on earth. It starts very early on in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, uh, where it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
In Matthew 4, 17, when Jesus began his ministry, he began it by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we see in the sermon itself on the mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is the idea that the kingdom of heaven is here. And then in verse 10, again, Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus commissioned his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 7, he says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, And then we know when Matthew's gospel first started, he gives this uh, chronology to show that Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews. So that's the message. Matthew's saying, Jesus, the king is here, and the kingdom is here. And the Sermon on the Mount is placed at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and Matthew does this, I believe, as a way to tell his audience, the king is here, Uh, the chronology in chapter 1 shows he's of the line of David, Uh, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus is the king, and the Sermon on the Mount is now here, uh, is who is in the kingdom, And here are the king's rules. God is the creator. Jesus is king, and he makes the rules. So the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, this this describes who's in the kingdom. These are the people that are in the kingdom, not the religious Pharisees who looked uh, righteous on the outside, but those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who realize they're bankrupt, they have nothing to offer God, they know that they deserve God's wrath. Those who know they have nothing good to offer, those are the ones that are in the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn because we realize we have nothing to offer God. And those who mourn over their sin and seek God, those are the ones that are in the kingdom. Those who show mercy, those who are gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6. Those who are pure in heart, they shall see God. So the sermon starts out sort of in the general sense. This is generally who a Christian is. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus moves to the particular. Okay, here, who's in the kingdom, and then the rest of the sermon are, here is how a Christian lives their life. Here are the particulars about a Christian. We just finished chapter 5. Chapter 5 starts after describing who is a true Christian in verses 13 through 16, describes how a Christian lives in relationship to the world, salt and light. Then verse 17 through the rest of the chapter deals with how the Christian lives in the relation to the law of God. So we went through that number of sermons. Jesus used six illustrations to correct the external and the oral traditions of the Jewish teachers. And in doing so, Jesus describes how a regenerated believer lives in relation to God's law. The Christian, as described in the Beatitudes, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sin, those who are merciful, who who hunger and thirst for righteousness— the supernatural work of God upon a believer, those Christians described in the Beatitude seek to obey not only the letter of the law, 
but the spirit of the law. And we reviewed those, the internal things of the law, right? Those that are true Christians, as described in the Beatitudes, seek to have a purity of heart, to not only not uh, commit adultery externally, but true believers don't even want to commit it in their own hearts. Uh, true believers, as defined in the Beatitudes, not only don't want to murder people externally, but they want to get rid of all the hatred they have in their heart towards others because they know that that displeases God uh, as well. So this is uh, without negating the letter of the law. Okay? So the true Christian wants to obey the, the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. So in other words, the Christian wants to obey the intent of the law from the heart, not merely adhering to the commands of God externally. Chapter 6, as we're starting today, deals with how the Christian lives in the real presence of God the Father. That's the theme in chapter 6. I am carrying out both spiritual and physical duties before God the Father. In chapter 6, the reference to your father or our father is used 14 times in just 34 verses. The first half of chapter 6 addresses how the Christian carries out his spiritual life in the presence of God the Father. The second half of chapter 6 deals with how the Christian carries out his everyday physical life in the presence of God, with providing for the physical needs of life. The Christian, as described in the Beatitudes, seeks to do all things to glorify God alone, whether it's giving, praying, fasting, and giving all his dependence and trust in God the Father. And then chapter 7, we'll get with to there some point, maybe next year. Chapter 7 deals with how the Christian lives in the fear of God, where Jesus addresses topics like judgment, hypocrisy, uh, the broad way that leads to destruction, the narrow way that leads to life, false prophets, and false conversion, and ends with a sobering call to heed his words. So chapter 7 deals with how a Christian lives in the fear of God. So that's just a brief overview. Again, I wanted to kind of get our bearings, kind of zoom out a little bit and see where this sermon is in the context of the Gospel of Matthew and a brief outline. So let's look at our text today. Jesus deals once again with the heart of the matter and the importance of knowing yourself, not by your external performance, but by your internal motives and desires. John Calvin in his Institutes of Christian Religion actually begins this masterpiece in chapter 1 with the knowledge of God and the Creator, and his first two headings are this. The first is this, quote, without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. Then his second heading is without knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self. How is that possible? But Calvin, at the very beginning of this masterpiece of Christian religion, states that all true wisdom we possess is wrapped up in these two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And he says they're not mutually exclusive. To know God, you must know yourself. 
And to truly know yourself, you must truly know God. He states in one of these headings, quote, when you know yourself, he says, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more depravity and corruption, we recognize that the light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good, and purity of righteousness rests in the Lord alone. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God, and we cannot seriously aspire to Him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. End quote. In other words, what Calvin is saying here is that the more that we understand the depths of our own depravity and the depths of our own sinful heart and our own bent towards evil, we cannot seriously seek God as, his, as he requires. As a matter of fact, we will not seek God as he requires. He goes on to say, quote, As long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue— we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods or like little gods, right? Uh, so what Calvin is saying here, and this is uh, unfortunately an indictment of much of the American church, is that we don't look beyond ourselves and we don't look beyond uh, our own righteousness. We're content with what we think is good in ourselves. We, we're content with what we think is our own good wisdom and we flatter ourselves and we build ourselves up as such a, a great person that, that God just can't do without, okay? But Jesus here in the sermon continues to bring the law of God to bear upon the inner workings of man. And that's the purpose of God's law, friends. It's to open up our hearts to expose our true nature. And here's the beauty of it. Because many think, wow, that's such a downer, Mark, and and it's always seemed like you're, you're just, you know, putting down mankind, right? We're made in the image of God. Yes, we have, we have worth, we have, we have value because we are made in God's image. But the beauty of it is when the law of God exposes our heart and lays us open to bear, then we can truly understand and know the beauty of God and the beauty of Christ and the beauty of God's love and his mercy. And there, my friends, is where we find our peace, and there is where we find true joy because our joy is in Christ and what he has done, not in what we think is right in our own eyes. Matter of fact, Hebrews speaks to this, for the word of God is living. You guys know this verse, right? It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the law of God does. So when the law of God and God's commands are accurately preached from the pulpit, God does a redeeming work when the word of God is preached accurately to the text. It does a work of God to, to judge your very thoughts and intentions. In verse 13, it says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's what the Word of God does, my friends. It lays us open. We can't hide from God. But the point is, is that we need the law of God to come and do such a heart work to, to split us open. Not that 
God discover something about us. He knows our intentions. But the point is, so it could be split open so that we can see our own cancer rotting our hearts. And Jesus continues to do this here in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is why this sermon warrants such careful study. We would do so well to study Jesus' words here in these three chapters very carefully. So I hope and I pray that you're following along with me as we go through these sermons and spending some time every now and again on on reading and, and considering this sermon. May his words here in this sermon on the mount reveal to you the true nature of yourself so that you will grow in your own displeasure of your sinful self and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, here in chapter 6, if you look, starting at verse 1 through verse 20, 20, well, really 19, 18, he gives these three illustrations, and it's very similar to chapter 5. Remember, we went through six illustrations that God gave to illustrate uh, the point of the law is internal, right? They all pointed to kind of the same principles. Well, it's very similar here in chapter 6. God uh, and Jesus gives three illustrations here with giving, praying, and fasting, and he's doing it to make one specific point. Today, we're going to actually look at these three examples holistically and then in the upcoming weeks, we're going to look at them individually. Uh, we're, today, we're going to look at the warning that Jesus gives, the remedy that he gives, and then the reward. So we're going to look at the warning, the remedy, and the reward. So first, the warning. Chapter 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. The first thing we have to pay attention to is that very first word. Uh, your version might say, take heed. Uh, it says, beware. Uh, this word in the Greek means to take heed, to pay attention, to wake up, open your eyes. And it's a verb, which means it's an action, and it's in the imperative tense, meaning he's commanding you. This is not an option. This is so important to your walk, friends. God is commanding you to beware that you don't do these things. Beware that you don't practice your righteousness uh, before men or to be noticed by them. Uh, Don't practice your charitable deeds, your version might say, uh, to be noticed by men. This is not a passive verse. This This is active. We have to pay attention and take action because, as the Bible says, your heart so easily goes astray that you can fool and lie to yourself and not even being aware that you're doing these things, not for the glory of God, but so that so-and-so sees that you're so spiritual and you want to look good in front of others. So we have to take warning because none of us are good to the point that we won't be susceptible uh, to the sin. So Jesus is telling his audience to pay attention. This is important, okay? Uh, The first thing to notice with this is that if you're studying the Sermon on the Mount, it actually seems to be opposite of what Jesus taught earlier in the sermon. Remember, back in chapter 5, look at verse 16 if you have your Bibles. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your what? Your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Well, what is it, Mark? I mean, Jesus over here is saying to do your good works before men. And it's good to do your works before men so that 
they see your, your Christian deeds and they'll maybe seek Christ and they'll glorify God in heaven. So which is it? Now God's telling us, you know, don't do your deeds before men so that, you know, you do them in secret. Which is it? Well, it's not an either or. Uh, it's a both and. Okay, friends, doing good works with the motivation to be seen by other men is not shining your light. It's not being salt and light in the world. Uh, God doesn't want you to go do your deeds to be seen by men, okay? It's a both and. So if you're doing your deeds to be seen by men or women, that's not shining the light. When you're doing your deeds to glorify men, yes, that's the context of the first part in chapter 5 is that you're letting your light shine before men. You're being open with Christ as your Savior to all of the world. And you're not, you're not hiding the fact that you love Christ and Christ is King. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. There's no contradictory here. Both of these passages work in harmony. Okay, So when we're doing good deeds for the right motives... Yes, amen. We should not be ashamed to do them out in the open so that other people can see and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So back here uh, in our text, verse 1 is an introduction to the three illustrations, okay? Uh, He sort of introduces this idea not to practice your righteousness before men, to to be noticed by them. He says, otherwise you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Then verse 2, he goes into the specifics. So when you give, and then later on, when you fast, when you pray. So verse 1 here seems to be an introduction that Jesus is giving, uh, sort of holistic principle uh, to not do your works to be noticed by men. So notice that it's not doing it before them. The command is not to not practice your good deeds in front of other people, the command is not to do it to be noticed by other people. You see the difference? And he says, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Doing good works to be seen by men is what I call spiritual pride, and that's the title of my message, spiritual pride. So he says the same thing uh, in the opening of the, of the text. He says the same thing in verse 2, um, verse 5, and verse 16. So when you give, don't do it to be honored by men in verse 2. Verse 5, when you pray, don't do it as the hypocrites do it to be seen by men. Verse 16, when you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites uh, so that they, they do it so they'll be noticed by men. Okay, so this, this idea to be noticed by man is repeated uh, four times, really, verse 1, then 2, 5, and 16. And so the warning is against having the wrong motives for everything that you do, for having the wrong motives. And only one person truly knows your motives. And that's God himself. No one else knows why you do what you do, friends. You can hide it from those around you, uh, but the Lord sees. And God has always looked for motives more than external 
performance. Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And then in Proverbs 24, where we're commanded to rescue those who are being taken away to death, he says in verse 12, if you say, see, we didn't know this, meaning you turn a blind eye to injustice, people being led away to slaughter. Uh, He says, if you say, we didn't know this, it says, does he not consider it who weighs the heart, and does he not know it who keeps the soul? So God knows your motives, knows why you do it, and as a matter of fact, he's actually oftentimes more, I think, more concerned with your motives than what you're actually doing. The Lord searches the heart and tests the mind, Jeremiah 17, 10. Proverbs 21, 27 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? So when the wicked are doing something good, like this, a sacrifice, it's an abomination. He says, how much more of an abomination when they do it with evil motives? God cares very much why you do the things you do. So we must be active as believers that profess Christ. If you're here today and you profess Christ as your Savior, we must be active in weighing our own motives, pondering our own hearts, asking ourselves, why am I doing this? Why am I going to do this? Is it so that others would see me? And then repenting when we have wrong motives and seeking Christ to create a clean heart. You see, in the historical context, the scribes and the Pharisees, not only did they misinterpret the Old Testament law, twisting the external demands while ignoring the internal demands, they also prided themselves with their religious duties. These three examples, giving, praying, and fasting, uh, they actually represent the full spectrum of spiritual duties as believers. So while we're going to look at each one of them in the upcoming weeks, it's important that we focus on these principles holistically and not pigeonhole ourselves to these examples, making them a law in and themselves. You get what I'm saying? Jesus is not just talking about giving and praying and fasting. There's a lot of other things outside of those things that God would care that you're doing to be noticed by men. But the idea of giving has to do with our spiritual duties to love our neighbor, giving to the poor, giving, doing charitable deeds. Okay, these would include all spiritual duties to love our neighbor. And then when he says when you pray, you know, this could include not just praying, but all of our spiritual duties of worship. And then fasting, this has the idea of mortifying our flesh and furthering our sanctification and our holiness killing sin, and living unto righteousness. The Pharisees' righteousness was merely external, which was no righteousness at all. The believer, as described in the Beatitudes, has a practical righteousness in their daily life that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. The believer's righteousness is internal, which, friends, leads to external holiness and external conformance to Christ. This chapter 6 describes the contrast by exposing the scribes and Pharisees' spiritual pride. 
With each example Jesus gives, he references, don't do it like the hypocrites. Jesus is warning of this trap that we can easily fall into. We can become hypocrites as Christians when we do righteous deeds with the intent to be seen by others or to receive accolades or to receive approval from others or praises uh, from others. This could be people within our own home. This could be neighbors. This could be coworkers. This could be people at church. It could be anybody. We become hypocrites when we seek the approval of men more than the approval of God. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees all throughout his ministry for this. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives the most starkest, longest rebukes of the Pharisees and pronounce a series of woes to them. And one of the things he says in 23 verse 5, speaking of them, it says, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Then describe some of those deeds. They brought in their phylacteries and lengthened the tassels on their garments to, to, say, to show how holy they are. In verse 14, uh, they say, it's a, he says, for a pretense, they make long prayers, right? For show, all for show, they make these long, grand prayers and outwardly appear righteous to men in verse 28. And we know that these Pharisees, the ones that are being rebuked, were not regenerate. They were not saved. And that's all religious people can do that aren't saved. Religious people that aren't regenerate, that aren't saved, they can't do good, righteous deeds for the glory of God because they have not been regenerated. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Their ultimate goal is self. They can't please God with their righteous deeds. As a matter of fact, they're only adding to their condemnation by doing righteous deeds for the wrong reasons. But this could be a trap for believers as well. It's important for us to know that even good, say good, even devoted believers can fall into the trap of doing their good deeds to be noticed by men, to seek the approval of men, to fear man more than they fear God. And this habit, if it's left unchecked, it only grows to the point where you become a lover of man's approval instead of God's. And friends, it will lead to compromise and it will become the salt that Jesus describes that's good for nothing because it's lost its saltiness and the only thing it's good for now is to be trampled on by man. And we see this so much in the culture today. We see Christians who seek the approval of man, they get scared because of what the repercussions might be like, and then they close their mouths or hide their Christianity, and they become trampled on by the God-hating culture of our day. They lose their salt because they did their deeds to be approved by man. And if you don't, if you don't check that, and evaluate your own heart, it's a slow fade. You can slowly fade into that trap. And I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. Turn to to John chapter 12, uh, where we see an example of the consequences of believers who seek approval from men instead of God. John chapter 12, starting at verse 37. 
But though he had performed many, so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah said, again, he has blinded their eyes and his heart in their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I would heal them. These things Isaiah saw because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So he's just talking about all the unregenerate unbelief of the Jews. But verse 42 says this, nevertheless, contrasting, many, even the rulers believed in him because of the, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him that's not a salvific confession that means publicly speaking i am a christian i believe in christ and it says for fear that they would be put out of the synagogues verse 43 for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of god now some commentators want to say that these weren't true believers because they didn't confess christ before men But I don't agree with that, and some other commentators would be on my side because there's such a stark contrast in verse 42 that says, nevertheless, here are the unregenerate Jews, nevertheless, there were were some. There were some rulers that believed in him. And the the wording in the Greek to believe in him is always spoken about salvation, to, to believe in him. It wasn't a mental assent. Right? It was act, they actually believed in Christ unto salvation, but were not public about it. And why? Because they loved the approval of man and that did not fear God. And this happens today, so much today, especially in this climate where you have this growing, God-hating climate that wants to cancel anyone that claims to be a Bible-believing Christian. So these were leaders who had saving faith. They were in the public limelight, but their faith was so shallow, timid, and immature, they became cowards. And because they sought the approval of man, it totally negated their faith that they had in the public sphere. Today, we see leaders in various cultural aspects who might say that they're a Christian, whisper their profession of faith, but when the heat's put on them, They become lovers of man, and because they love the approval of man, they hide, they shut their mouth, or they capitulate to the culture. And so, friends, this this doesn't start in the big things. This starts in the little things. It starts in you doing your deeds to be noticed by other people. You're putting your, your, your approval and what other people think, and not what God thinks, okay? A recent example of this, let me, let me share with this what this looks like in our culture. Uh, you may have recently heard last month about the L.A. Dodgers baseball team. They had their 10th annual Pride Night, and they had drag uh, performers called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, uh, which were drag queen performers uh, performing all kind of abominable pictures and acts, and, and mocking the Roman Catholic Church. Now look, putting aside the issues with the Roman Catholic Church, the show not only mocks God by displaying all these abominable sins, 
but to the world who, who the world doesn't differentiate Roman Catholicism and, and Christianity, okay? To them, it's one thing. So to uh, the world, this displayed a mocking of Christianity. Again, although we can make distinctions, we understand that. Uh, and it was, it was totally abominable what this organization was doing. Well, two Dodger players came out hard against this and took a stand for being a follower of Christ. One wrote a letter that it was a, it was a wonderful letter, had scripture, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and was rebuking his own organization for allowing this abominable uh, show to, to come. Now, what you didn't hear about, and these players received vicious attacks from the alphabet mafia. I mean, they were totally labeled as bigots, and, and all the rest. But what you may not have heard about is the manager for the Dodgers. His name is Dave Roberts. He has been an outspoken Christian in, in the past. And where was he during this whole thing? He remained quiet, didn't say a word. In fact, he wished everybody a happy Pride Month this June while he was wearing his rainbow-colored Dodgers hat. A few years ago, he came under fire for speaking at an FCA event, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Okay, you may be familiar with that organization. It's not some, I would call, like, hardline, you know, like an abolition type of, you know, obvious, uh, hard biblical organization, okay? But he got a lot of flack for that just a couple years ago. I mean, a lot of flack. I mean, the Alphabet Mafia was writing hate articles on this guy because he spoke at an FCA event. Why? Because in the FCA statement of faith, it says we believe marriage is between one man and one woman. That's it. And they reamed him. And what was his response? I never read their statement of faith. That was his response. And I already committed to do it, so I did it. That, that was his response. I never read their statement of faith, and I committed to speak. Okay? This is what I'm talking. This is an example of what we see in John chapter 12, where this man is in the limelight. He's a Christian, and he's been outspoken of it in the past. But now, because of the, what I believe, seeking the approval of man and loving approval of man more than of God, he is capitulating and quieting and not standing up and saying, yes, I spoke at this organization. Yes, I believe the Bible. That's what should have been the answer. But he's an example of someone who loves the approval of man more than of God. So we must heed Christ's warning here to do all things, not for the approval or honor of man, not to be noticed by men, but to do all things for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. So we have to evaluate our hearts and what we're doing today and everything we do. So that's the warning. Next, we have the remedy. Jesus gives the warning for spiritual pride. We're all susceptible to it. No one's immune to it. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Well, the remedy is this, is to have a single eye for the glory of God. A single eye for the glory of God. In each example, in these three, Jesus says, don't do it like the hypocrites. They do it for the praise and honor of men. But do it so that your father would be the only one, excuse me, 
but do it so that is as if your father would be the only one seeing that you're doing it. He says in verses 4, 6, and 18, so that your giving, your praying, your fasting will be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Doing the right thing when no one is watching or where nobody will ever find out, save God the Father, reflects a single eye for the glory of God. This person is doing it for God alone, no matter if anyone ever sees or finds out. So then, brethren, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory and for the glory of God as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Man's chief end is to what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. Your spiritual activities that you do for, for others, uh, for church, for your family, would you still do those things with all your heart if you knew that no one would ever see it or ever find out? So to remedy the desire to be seen by men and to solely do things for the glory of God requires three things. Again, the remedy, to remedy the desire to be noticed by men or women, to be noticed by others, and to solely do all things for the glory of God requires three things. It requires, one, a high view of God. Number two, a low view of self. Number three, a heart change only brought by the Holy Spirit. You see, friends, if you're doing things and you catch yourself or you're looking, maybe you're looking now, you're like, wow, I, I've, I've done this and that and that because I wanted people to see me and think that I was a good Christian. If you're doing those things and, and you're uh, drawn to do those things or you struggle to do those things or you catch yourself in those things, it's either one of those three things. Either you have a low view of God or a higher view of yourself, or God truly hasn't changed your heart. The Holy Spirit hasn't regenerated your heart so that you actually do desire to glorify God. But most Christians, if you are a Christian, you're a born-again believer, then you are absolutely receiving what is being said here, and you want to glorify God in everything that you do. But because we're fallen, everything that we do is tainted by sin. Everything. So when you do a spiritual good deed or you're thinking about doing something, there is, if not every time, some of the time going to creep up about some type of little pride seed in your heart that, oh, so-and-so will see. Okay? Now, if you're denying that, we need to have a talk about not lying. Okay? Because everything we do is tainted with sin. Everything. You know, one example I can think of is you know, in our circles, uh, our reform circles, Open-air preaching is very popular nowadays, okay? Um, it's very commendable, as a matter of fact. And there's a lot of open-air preachers that are sort of like celebrities, like everybody likes to watch them, and they're very popular. They go out into the street, and they get on a stool, and they start preaching, okay? Praise God. That's how Jesus preached. He walked around and preached in the streets. That's how Paul the Apostle preached. He'd go in the churches. He'd go in the streets and start riots, okay? Uh, so it's a very biblical thing. Uh, and at the same time, it can also create some spiritual pride for people who go out, uh, and they go out with the intention of filming themselves so that other people can see it online, 
okay? So social media is another trap that we can, hey, let's, it doesn't have to be open-air preaching, because not everybody does that here, but it can do anything. Okay, I'm going to take a picture of this verse I'm reading in the Bible, okay? And I'm going to post it. Okay, why are you doing that? Do you want other people seeing that you're reading the Bible in the morning and you're just a superstar Christian, right? Okay, so we have to check ourselves. But with the open-air preaching, uh, that has been so commendable that I, you know, I can't judge the intentions of people. uh, But there is a trap that people who go out and do that to go film themselves and post it because they want the likes and they want to see people seeing them online, okay? And here's some advice for Mark. If there's something that's susceptible to spiritual pride, like don't do it, okay? Just don't do it, right? So I open air preach, and because we're all susceptible to pride, um, like I can see that, right? So like I'm like, I'm just not going to film anything, okay? And that doesn't always work, but it's always there to like, oh, people could see you and all that. Uh, but if there's something that might lead you into spiritual pride, you know, just stay away from it. Stay far away from it. Now, on the other side of that, because there is, there is an other side, as Jesus said, let your light shine with so men so they can see your good deeds. If you can do something, say open-air preaching, say it's taking a picture and posting of your Bible, whatever, with good intentions, because what it can do, it can encourage others, that's the right motives. Hey, I want people to see that I'm out here witnessing, and this guy's actually talking to me, and he's asking about Christ, and I just gave the gospel to somebody. Praise God, I want other people to see that so that they can be uh, encouraged to go out and share the gospel. Like, that's good motives, right? You're not doing it to be seen by others. You're doing it to encourage your brother. So there is a flip side uh, to that. But again, the remedy is we have to have a single eye to God for his glory. And if you don't, it's either have, you either have a low view of God, high view of self, or God truly hasn't changed your heart. So the last thing we're going to look at is the reward. Okay, this will come a little more brief. But notice there's a reference to rewards in all three of these illustrations. Jesus says, if you practice your righteous deeds to be seen of men, you do not have a reward. And that others see what you do is the reward. The appearance or the acknowledgement or the honor you get from others is your reward, Jesus says. In fact, he says your reward is paid in full. You got what you wanted. You wanted other people to see you. That's your reward. And there's nothing else to have. There's no rewards for you from your Father in heaven. And he says that in every example. But when Jesus says that, this presupposes that there are rewards for doing the right things with the right verses, right? Verse 4, he says, may your giving be in secret so your Father will reward you. Verse 6, pray in secret, your Father will reward you. Verse 18, fasting undercover, right? So no one knows but God, and he will reward you. So there are rewards for obedience. Now, while Jesus references these rewards, at the same time, because we're fallen, we can start then doing it for the rewards, and that's not right either. We should never do things for the rewards because that's not having the right motives either. Uh, And we see that rampant, right, with the prosperity gospel. Uh, You're encouraged to do things and to sow a seed and to do these things expecting the reward. As a matter of fact, you see people be so blasphemous to give the seed and then demand that God pay your reward. 
How blasphemous. That's the wrong motives too. We should never be doing things to receive a reward. That's rampant in the prosperity gospel. Instead, our response when we do things for the right reason should be the response and reflective of a humble servant. Real quickly, turn to Luke 17. And here is how our response should be when we are doing the right things for God for the right reasons. Luke 17, verse 7. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Hey, come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare me something to eat? And properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you can eat and drink as well. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which you are commanded, and I would say meaning you do the right things for the right reasons, you say we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. Jesus is saying, how many slave owners would have a slave come in working all day in the field and the slave owner say, okay, you sit down, I'm going to serve you. That's, he's using a picture of the slave and the master relationship uh, to say that we are slaves of Christ, are we not? We are to do what the master tells us to do. And when we're done, when we've done all that we are supposed to do, we come in, we don't come in and say, look at me, Jesus. I did all that I'm supposed to do. Now, now where's my rewards, right? How arrogant, how prideful that is. No, we come and we say, Lord, I just did what I was supposed to do. That's it. And that reflects the heart of a humble servant. Parents, isn't that how you treat your kids? When your kid does something right, you're like, great job, you did this, and that's what I've been teaching you? Wonderful. And little Miss Sal- Sally, I'm trying to think of a name that's not in here. Uh, little Miss Sally comes and says, can I have a treat because I did the right thing? Right? Parents, now, you know, if they're like three, that might be cute. You might give it to them. But if they're like, like 10, like, can I have some ice cream since I made my bed, which I'm supposed to do every single day, right? You're like, no, right? But if they don't ask for the reward and they're that humble servant and you say, great job for making your bed. I know it's been hard for you to pull that cover up. It takes five seconds, you know? And they're just like, yes, mom, and that's it. And they're humble about it, and you see they're trying, you're doing it. What does that do to you? It, it makes you want to reward them at that point, right? They're not coming and demanding a reward, okay? And that's how Jesus is the same. We shouldn't be doing the right things for rewards. We ought to be doing them because it glorifies God, amen? God knows your motives, and you cannot fool God. But God does show us that he does reward us. What, what do these rewards look like, you might ask? Well, for the most part, in our text, Jesus is looking towards eternal rewards. If you look down at verse 19 and 20, he talks about storing up treasures in heaven, and this is right after the three examples. So his view is mainly on eternal rewards, uh, not here on earth, because man's praise is temporary. But God's rewards are eternal. Now, Scripture is not clear on what these eternal rewards will be exactly. But we ought to not care so much about that. But our care, again, should be for the glory of 
God. Now, God does give us rewards on this earth, okay? We actually see that at the end of the sermon in chapter 7, when we hear and obey Jesus' words, he promises we will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. So there's rewards there. When the floods come, our foundation is stable. We would not uh, be destroyed. We would not be washed away by the storms of life. And Jesus also promises those who obey his words that they will abide in his love. John fifteen ten. So that's a promise for now while we're here on the earth. There are rewards that are here for us now when we do the right things for the right reasons. And that's one of them, that we would abide in the love of Christ. Uh, our joy will increase. Our peace will increase. Uh, we'll have more love for God and love for others. Those are all rewards that God gives us here. And isn't that what you want? Or you want those rewards. You don't want materialistic rewards, which he says later on in the chapter that you know, can be eaten and destroyed uh, by moths, right? We want eternal, we want spiritual rewards. But again, this needs not to be our motivation, brothers and sisters. We must be motivated uh, by the glory of God and the glory of God alone. Uh, So in conclusion, I want to ask you, why do you do what you do? Why did you come to church today? Was it for the glory of God? When you do the right thing within the course of the day, whatever it is, is it to be noticed by others, even your own coworkers or your family or your friends, those on your social media accounts? Do you do it to be noticed by them or even members in your own household? Uh, Children, listen to me. Let me ask you, do you do the right thing when mom and dad are looking? Is it to be noticed by mom? Is it to be noticed by dad? But when they're not looking, you don't do the right thing because you know they're not around. But God is ever-present, even when mom and dad are not around, children. God sees what you do, and if you're only doing the right thing because mom and dad are watching, then you're not doing it for the glory of God, and you're, you're doing what Jesus says not to do, not to do the right thing, to be noticed by mom and dad, but to do it to be noticed by your Father, who is in heaven, children. So are you doing the right thing when others are watching? One of the distinct marks of a believer is that they are progressively being sanctified, being conformed to the image of Christ, who always did the right thing, Jesus, when he was on earth, and he always did it with the right motive, which was to glorify his Father in heaven. And this, dear friends, is how God is sanctifying you, by laying open your heart and revealing the cancerous cells that you and I so desperately need to see so we can bring it to Christ, so he can do the healing, and so we can grow in righteousness. If this hurts, praise God. If these sermons opening up your heart hurt, praise God. That means he's working on you. Uh, Repent and walk by faith, knowing that he who began a good work in you, will complete it to the day of Christ. So don't be, don't stand in condemnation. Let God do the work in your heart. Let the pain bring you to repentance and so that you would continue to walk by faith, knowing 
that you've confessed your sins and Christ is, is faithful to forgive you of your sins and continue to walk by faith. And when you fall, continue to repent, continue to walk by faith. When you fall, continue to repent and continue to walk by faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, that you have not left us in our sin, even those of us in Christ. God, how, how often we fall into the same besetting sins. Lord, we need so much of your grace upon our hearts, God, so that we would not have wrong motives, that we would not do things to be seen by men, to be honored by men, to be praised by men, but that we would do things, God, to, to honor and glorify Christ. Father, help us to not be, Lord, like these leaders in John chapter 12 who profess Christ in the closet, but love the approval of man so much that it totally negated their walk, and they were totally useless. They were the salt that was only good for to be trampled upon man. God, may we never be saltless salt, God. Help us to fear you, God, and to seek your approval, and to be like this humble servant, Lord, who just gives you the glory. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us, God, so that the world and those around us would truly see who Christ is, Lord, through our works, through our words, through our deeds. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the time together today, Lord. We pray that you continue to use your words, Lord Jesus, to sanctify your people. God, those here or listening, God, that aren't in Christ, youngest to oldest, Lord, I pray that you would use this word, Father, to open up their hearts, to draw them to you, Father, to bring them to repentance and faith, and that you would be glorified in their salvation and not condemnation, Lord. We thank you. We give you all praise 